Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. A fitting finale to Great Voices. That was Chris and Alan and this is Jan with Tuesday Home Time until 6 this afternoon. Today, Gene Ethics monthly review of all issues genetic modified. Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network. An unsung hero, Jerry Zawanda. And Mike Bremer in Chicago, a member of the Voices for Creative Nonviolence, will be looking back on the life of Jerry. Visit to Sicily and Greece by one of our programmers here at 3CR. Serenading Adela, the former suffragette and then anti-war activist who came to Australia to assist with the anti-conscription campaigns in 1916-17, ended up in Pentridge Jail and the serenading Adela was when hundreds of people marched up Sydney Road to Pentridge Jail and tried to serenade her out of the prison. I'm speaking with the artistic director, Jeannie Marsh, and of course it's time for Mr. Kevin Healy, and he's had another week, I do believe. A week, Jane Lister, when, as we beg their honours to keep God's gift to satire in his place, this week, Hayseed and Sheepshit Party and Deputy Big Supremo Barnacles next in line, Fiona Smash Greenies, is also heading to the High Court. Who's number three? There could be no one left soon. Sorry, left will insult them and they've got enough worries on their plate at the moment. No, no one remaining soon. And they all say it has something to do with dissent, which at least shows they are being realistic about where they're all heading, where the government's heading. But what if this business is taken to its extreme? It's possible the only people eligible to be in Parliament could be the terra nullius people, which would have the added disadvantage of creating the first minister for terra nullius affairs who isn't white. We whites know what's good for the terra nullius people, like recognising they don't exist because they are terra nullius, and seeing they are terra nullius and can't prove who they are because they can't produce any pre-1788 legal papers or land titles to prove who they are or what they own, what they selfishly claim they own, no one might be eligible to be a parliamentarian at all and so we'll face a catastrophe where there'll be no parliament. Wouldn't that be tragic? Bet it's frightened the proverbial out of you, listener. Just as frightening, what have things come to when in the same week, former U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo warmonger and prize moron, George W. Bash the workers, and his warmonger dad, and our very own Attorney General George Brandy's brain, look good which shows the vagaries of relativities, which in turn says heaps about current US of big supremo Donald Trample the Poor and our very own that appalling Hoonsun, who wore what I think must be called a bonkers into Parliament because someone said she's gone bonkers and she said she wants to ban bonkers, but appalling it's not that easy. You can't legislate away being bonkers. 
doing the right thing, the right, right, far right thing, her co-conspirator in making the Georges look good, well, better, good's going too far, Donald Trample the poor, condemning violent, long-haired, commie, greenie, lefty, liberal, is there a more pejorative term in the US of than liberal, rightfully pejorative, lefty liberal protesters provoking the poor white supremacist fascists who just want to uphold a few cherished US of values like white supremacism, fascism, slavery, lynching, that sort of thing. Well, they've got wage slavery and how, but why not go back a step? Sensible slogans like, white lives matter. And if you say otherwise, see, just bringing a bit of balance into the debate, what gives blacks the exclusive right to that ground, other than they're the ones the, sorry, the cops keep shooting? The white supremacist fascists would not have to carry all those weapons, that arsenal, including their cars, if the violent lefties, extremists, did not provoke them. Sad, very sad, bad, very bad. It's a free country, it's the land of the free, and they have every right to express their point of view without the violence of commies, of namby-pamby liberals, bad, very bad, and, he added proudly, we are proud that they express their love of the U.S. of God bless America by exercising their constitutional right to bear arms, the second greatest freedom of all. Very good, very good. White supremacists, fascists, love them or hate them, you've got to admire them for that, for upholding the Constitution. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, what's the first greatest freedom? Capital. The freedom of capital. Very, very, very good. Fantastic. With that, Donald also said he was opposed to violence. And on a different matter, very bad, I warn evil, bad Venezuela to respect that freedom of capital or they will feel the full force of the most powerful nation in the world. Very good. Very, very good. And I warn evil North Korea that unless it abandons its nuclear program, we will have to nuke it. Fire and fury. Fire and fury. Very good. Very good. Uh, so you will use nuclear warfare to protect the world from uh, nuclear warfare. We love peace. Fantastic. Fantastic. Donald does use fantastic quite a lot, and we suppose that's because it's the sort of world he lives in. Before we move on, could anyone explain how driving your car at high speed into a crowd of people because they hold different views qualifies as second-degree murder, kind of like manslaughter under our law? What would he have had to do to cop first-degree murder? Thank goodness we have no white supremacist fascists here, and therefore how divisive that Yarra Council should introduce black supremacism, wiping out true blue Aussie day. P 
poor Arthur Philip would be turning in his grave. And it took about two and a half minutes, give or take, for those who hate the vision to be up in verbal arms, if that not be some sort of mixed metaphor or mixed analogy, or even if it is. They have no right to naturalise people just as well, because they're more likely than not to naturalise bloody, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. And the Lord Rupert of Wapping, usual suspect columnist with the bolt through his head, said the council was dividing the community on the specious grounds that our great national invasion day, uh, sorry, great national union, Jack, God save her most gracious majesty day, divided some people, but only because those some people insist on claiming falsely that his most gracious majesty settling and civilising a terra nullius country was some sort of invasion. For goodness sake, can't these anti-true blue Aussie disruptors get the definition of terra nullius into their heads, recognise they weren't even here, didn't exist and don't exist? To prove terra nullius, Malcolm wasted no time putting Yarra in its place, which, as he said, should be in the eponymous river, where, given the pollution, they wouldn't last too long. Not nearly as long as the terra nullius non-people have hung on, despite all those attempts post-Arthur Philip to make them terra nullius, and Darabin, the Dare to Ban Council, having also wiped out our great proud True Blue Aussie Union Jack Day, will have its citizenship rights removed almost immediately, proving what a strong leader Malcolm is. We must express concern for the indigenous people without going to extremes like recognising they exist. He spoke for all who believe in one nation. No longer existing and in the apropos of nothing department, report this week that the world's oldest man had died. Bev thereby forfeiting his title. But the report said, the world's oldest living man. Surely the living bit is redundant. He, he wouldn't be the world's oldest dead man, would he? In fact, he is now one of the world's newest dead men. One of True Blue Aussie's ostensibly richest men, Twitty, Twitty Digger Forests, won a long-running high court case last week over a mining lease. Dispute between two great mining corporations, I hear you say. Well, no. One of True Blue Aussie's ostensibly richest miners, who believes in the inalienable capitalist law rights of resource companies to move on to private land to dig up what rightfully belongs to the great resource corporations, opposed mining leases on his own property, a western True Blue Aussie cattle station. Don't forget the Dig Up Forest family, Twitty's dad and granddad, made their fortune squatting on huge tracts of terra nullius land and doing the terra nullius non-people who thought they owned the land the favour of giving them a job in using them to make the place work in return for generous reimbursements like mirrors, tobacco and the odd cup of tea. Oh, and accommodation in comfortable little shanties over the hill out of sight. But Twitty... Twitty, you believe in the rights of mining companies to enter other people's land. Exactly. Other people's. In the Deja Vu department, our esteemed corporate leaders and economists who know all about these things continue to rack their brains over how to fix up the problem they keep telling us of slow wages growth. Yet again, all we can say is 
we can't see the problem. The answer seems obvious. But for those people, a bigger problem, well, catastrophe. The bloody pejorative Dan government plans to establish a homeless refuge in, in, wait for it, in Brighton. Brighton! A local real estate agent said what needed to be said. Homes in the direct vicinity of public housing sell for less, he bemoaned. One distressed local was shattered. A halfway house full of junkies and ex-criminals. I have five grandkids who play outside. I won't be allowing them out to play near drug or alcohol-affected people. Another respected Brightonian said he had nothing against those who need refuge, presumably as long as they are nowhere near Brighton. Finally, don't want to end on a depressing note, listener, but I have had this alarming thought. He had a thought, I hear you, your disbelief. I'll ignore that. Alarming thought. What might happen if this citizenship issue caught up with the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats and Keeping Us Secure, Peter Duffer? And it was found his descent had started with no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people, which, by Arthur Phillip, for all of us who are, are not Terranilius, it did. And poor Peter was banished to life imprisonment on Manus Island or Daru. Non-proper papers marked, Never to be allowed into True Blue Aussie, send back to where he came from. Pete last seen red, doleful eyes gazing lamentably, hopelessly, through razor wire. What a delightful thought. Oh, sorry, sorry, where did that come from? What a depressing thought. Good afternoon. I don't really think he's um, sincere on our good friend. This is another friend. This is Mr. Kevin Healy, and he's had another week, and he's going to have another morning tomorrow between 9 and 10 with his program with a bit of help from my friends, City Limits. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. There are heroes and there are unsung heroes and today we'll hear about one, the latter, Jerry Sawada, who died on the 25th of July, aged 80, whose belief in non-violence led him across the globe, Guatemala, Iraq, West Bank, US-Mexico border in Arizona and Texas and numerous military bases and facilities across the US. A Franciscan friar in the Catholic Church and a peace activist. Mike Bremer knew Jerry for the last 30 years of his life through their joint peace activities and I spoke with him at his home in Chicago. Mike, you knew Jerry for the last 30 years of his life. What can you tell me about the first 50? He was born in Gary, Indiana, which is also coincidentally the town that Michael Jackson, the singer, is from. And it's a working-class town, a lot of steel mills, a lot of refineries. 
and uh, his parents were immigrants from Poland, and they opened up a small grocery store and then lived in the apartment above the grocery store, and there were seven children in Jerry's family, and he was the second oldest. He was ordained to the priesthood in 1964, so he would have just um, celebrated 50 years. Did he stay in the United States in those early years, or did he travel? His first assignment uh, after he was ordained in 1964 was to the Philippines, where he stayed for about six years. I don't know a lot about it, but I know that he worked in um, very poor areas with poor people in the Philippines, and it had a definite impact on his life to see that level of poverty, especially Philippines in the early 60s would have been a much poorer country than it is today. What were the circumstances when you met him? Well, we actually met in a jail cell. We had both been arrested for trespassing on a uh, U.S. military base outside of Chicago. This base was in particular was a psychological operation base. What they did there was conduct the misinformation campaigns and the propaganda campaigns about insurgent groups, the Salvadoran guerrillas, or, or in this case, the Nicaraguan government in the 80s, the Sandinista government. So they, they conducted propaganda campaigns against those regimes. So we were protesting that, and uh, 80 people were arrested, and uh, most have been let go, and Jerry and I were the last two left in the cell. So we uh, met and talked for several hours. What did you do to land you in jail? Oh, we uh, climbed over the fence of the base, and then we were apprehended. And what did you learn about him in those couple of hours? Yeah, well, it was actually just uh, one day. You know, it's, it's quite a few years back, but I remember just being impressed by how calm a presence he was. I think I did learn some things about his earlier life, that he was from Gary that he was of Polish descent, his parents, uh, I think they both Polish. I have a mother who's of Polish descent, so I grew up around Polish speakers also. Sort of personal things like that, just um, anecdotes. This was uh, my first arrest, and this was one of his first arrests. So we, we were both new to activism. And where did it go from there? Well, from there... I uh, saw Jerry at different uh, demonstrations and also at uh, organizing meetings. Uh, in those years, we were organizing against the uh, U.S.-funded wars in Central America. Then I was living at a uh, Catholic worker house. There's uh, several house, Catholic worker houses in Chicago. There was a young man who um, came to one of the houses from Guatemala, his name was uh, Julio. He wanted to return. He had survived being captured by the Guatemalan military and uh, left, sort of left for dead, but um, he didn't quite die. He, they picked him up, and he's still alive, and, and then they brought him to Chicago for both medical treatment and uh, for his own safety. Uh, but he wanted to return to Guatemala, and um, I volunteered to go with him at sort of a international escort and support, and then uh, Jerry also um, volunteered to go. So we both went on that mission together. That would have been in 1993. Was the war by the U.S. against the people of Central America a big issue for you and your friends in those days? 
Oh, yes, it was. And, well, because I, I had lived in uh, uh, Panama. I, I myself was uh, studying to be a Catholic priest, and I, I worked in Panama and, and then in Nicaragua. And um, so I had a familiarity with that part of the world and the problems in that part of the world, which is basically repressive militaries that were putting down uh, popular movements uh, of people and, and people involved in the church. Can you talk a bit more about your time in Nicaragua? That was before the, the Sandinistas? Yeah, that was uh, during the Sandinistas. So I was, I was there as part of a group of people called Witness for Peace, and we were just part of, um, you know, hundreds of North Americans and then hundreds more Europeans who were in the country very deliberately to do service work in any number of roles or development work, but you know, there was a consciousness that you were there in order to be present and hopefully prevent a U.S. invasion of the country. Instead of invading the country, the Ronald Reagan administration funded a, a mercenary army which attacked um, cooperatives, uh, hospital schools, any government-run program that seemed to have some social benefit as a way to destabilize uh, the country. And so we were there as Americans to both be a witness to that and to tell people what was going on. And, uh, you know, I counted it as a, as a great victory because ultimately the, uh, the counter army disbanded and um, the popular movements weren't defeated. Did Jerry also go to Central America? Jerry spent time in Guatemala with me. Other than that, I don't know that he went for other than a short visit. But he did spend a lot of time in recent years on the U.S.-Mexican border. He was also a fluent Spanish speaker. What was he doing there? So on the border, he was a part of his American citizens in solidarity group that, that helped immigrants crossing the border, that helped them learn of their rights when they're apprehended. Uh, people will do things like leave water in the desert so people don't die of thirst. They also offer hospitality to people who cross the border. Uh, the border situation is a difficult one because often people can cross the border, but because of checkpoints further in, they really can't go anywhere. They're kind of isolated in uh, the, the southern tip of Arizona or, or Texas near El Paso. You talked about your arrest there with Jerry. How many more times was he arrested? I wasn't aware of the number, but when I read the uh, National Catholic Report, it says that he was arrested more than 100 times. Most of those were short since in, in prison, but a couple of them for, for uh, two years or more. And he spent a total of about five years in prison as a result of those uh, more than 100 arrests. What was he doing in those times to warrant being put into jail? You know, just to talk about some of the more recent ones, he was arrested with a group of um, 14 people at Creech Air Force Base, which um, sends drones out to uh, the Middle East and Afghanistan, and the drones are conducted from there. So they trespass onto the base to basically protest the, to interfere with in some small way and to say no to what the U.S. military is doing. His longest ends, I'm, uh, I'm almost forgetting, was 1989, and I was part of this effort uh, called the Missouri Peace Planting, 
me and a group of, again, happened to be before, num- number 14 of us went out to uh, missile silos, Miniman 2 missile silos in Missouri, in the state of Missouri, and jumped over the fence of the silo facility and then just did symbolic actions, planting corn. Jerry celebrated a map at his silo and then waited for the military to uh, come pick us up. The sensors would be triggered and as if uh, some, some, something like an object is in the, of the, of the silo lid, so they have to go out there and see what's there. Sometimes like a flock of birds might land on it by accident or a cow could get into a broken fence. But in this case, we were there and, uh, we were apprehended for that action. I, I did six months in federal prison. Uh, Jerry did 26 months. That's a long time, isn't it? 26 months. 26 months is really, yeah, you start to feel it after that amount of time, yeah. For being a peace activist. Yeah, this would have been simply for um, jumping over the fence of a missile silo and then having them come there and see that you're you know, you're on the silo facility. There's not really much to do with the big concrete lid that's covering the silo. It's six feet thick, and there's some sensors there. There's not much there other than knowing that it's a, a weapon that could destroy hundreds of thousands of lives you mentioned his support for people coming across the US-Mexico border. He was also a regular at SOA Watch protests, School of the right. Americas. Mm-hmm. Correct. Could you talk about that a little? Yeah, so every year um, for the last oh, 27, 28 years, a group of people have gathered at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, and I've gone down for at least 20 of those years to protest U.S. Army School of the Americas. Um, the School of the Americas is where the U.S. Army trains the Latin American Army officers. And many of these same officers have been later charged with major human rights violations, which include massacres, assassinations, and you know, systematic torture. Anywhere from a few thousand at its height, it was up to 20, 25,000 people gathered at Fort Benning. And again, in that case, the, the military would set up just a, a sort of a barricade and be crossed that you would be, um, you'd be apprehended and then sent to jail. They routinely made people serve the uh, maximum sentence for trespass, which is six months in federal prison. I know Jerry did one six month term, and maybe he did two and hard to keep track, but he was very persistent in calling attention to what the U.S. military was doing in Latin America and uh, how the space was uh, central to that. What was he doing in the lead-up to the Gulf War and also the war in 1990-91, the first Gulf War? Right. He was part of um, 19... In January 1991, when the uh, U.S. State Congress was debating going to war with Iraq, was um, part of the uh, Iraq Peace Team or the Gulf Peace Team, which um, a group of Americans and other internationals who went in and uh, had a peace camp on the uh, Saudi-Iraq border, were there the president to stop the war and be a witness to the war if it started, which is what, which is what they did. 
And what about 10 years later? Um, 10 years later, um, Jerry won 2000 in, in, in the Gulf War. You know, I'm sort of uh, losing track of Jerry among the activists at that point. Um, I'm sure he's involved in Gulf War. I'd imagine that all these activities wouldn't have gone down too well with the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. You know, surprisingly, uh, the church in Chicago and the Franciscan Order were supportive of Jerry in his peace witness and, to a certain extent, to his getting arrested and going to jail. He would also always tell his superiors that he was continuing his ministry in jail or in prison with other prisoners. But he seemed okay with that, and uh, in, in a sense, they had his funeral. I was at his funeral effort. They, they seemed quite proud of his uh, his peace witness. I, I think they might also say he went overboard. He was overzealous, but uh, they seemed to uh, be supportive of that aspect. What they were not supportive of, though, of the church hierarchy, was that uh, Jerry in 2011. Celebrated a mass with a, a woman who considered herself a Catholic priest, and uh, a number of priests who celebrated with her, which is in a, you know, in a sense saying, you know, they endorse women to be priests. And he was censored for that, and uh, after a year or two, he was relieved of any public ministry. So he, he couldn't say mass himself in public. That must have upset him a lot. It did upset him a lot. Because he, I think he would have said that, you know, he, he's been for oppressed people, for the underdog all his life, and he's the time travel from distance to make that known, protesting at different parts of the, the country and around the world. He said, but the thing closest to home is the uh, oppression of women. And the church that he belonged to, and, you know, at the same time he'd say he loved very much. He was a, a devoted priest, but he couldn't in good conscience just um, not do anything while uh, so many women who are left out of the leadership roles in the Catholic Church. So he, he took a stand, and he, I think he knew uh, exactly what would happen, because the same thing has happened to other Greeks. He actually had a fan club. Oh, he had, yes, he had a fan club. Yes, he did. How did that happen? Well, uh, I, I don't know the person because uh, I was involved in his activism in uh, Arizona, but there was uh, a woman who uh, knew him and he saw him work with Mexicans and Central Americans coming across the border and realized that he was always present at protests, he was present at meetings, he was very active. But Jerry was someone who was sort of quiet and behind-the-scenes type of person, but extremely dedicated. And, and also when he did speak, he had some important things to say. And so he's the sort of person who I think, perhaps in a spirit of fun, but also in a serious way, they said, we should really recognize him. He, he's just doing everything. He, he's great. Jerry is great, and we're going to become his fan. And because he'll, he'll never point attention to himself or draw attention to himself, and uh, so we're going to draw attention to him. I think that was the idea. It, it's really kind of fun, lighthearted, but also... Uh, serious in that, or recognizing him for who he was. Thinking about all the times that he was arrested and jailed, he worked with the prisoners while he was in jail, 
helping them out, trying to sort their lives out? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I talked to uh, I talked to him about that so much. Sometimes it would become you know because it w- he was a, a Catholic priest, he, he could easily become assistant to the chaplain. Although some of the, the jail prison chaplains can be very conservative and uh, not very supportive of the prisoners, and so he sometimes had a fallout with them. And then he would um, uh, run his own Bible study group, but really. Not that he didn't take the Bible study seriously. He just was looking for ways for prisoners to get together and talk about their lives. I think uh, Jerry, just knowing him, having been in prison myself, I mean, many prisoners just have a very poor self-image. They feel very guilty about what they've done, and it's important to just let them know that they have good qualities, that there's a good heart beating somewhere inside of them, and, and Jerry would have been very much in that vein helping prisoners see, see the good in their, in their lives and then forgive themselves for whatever they've done wrong. And he was an activist right up to virtually the end, wasn't he, when he got sick early this year? But up until then, he was out there. Yes, he was. He suffered this past year a series of debilitating strokes, but right up until the end, he was... Um, both involved in helping Mexican immigrants come across the border, finding sanctuary for people who were here, sometimes having you know, family members deported, and also at, at protesting at the uh, military bases. There's a picture of him in the National Catholic Reporter where he had his walker, uh, like a lot of elderly people have, and he was at a protest and kneeling as the uh, soldiers escorted him away and helped him with his walker. To the end, he was a uh, dedicated peace activist. How influential was he on your life, Mike? He was uh, one of a number of people who helped me see the importance of uh, putting yourself on the line for the things you believe. A lot of us who are involved in the peace movement were, were great talkers, including myself, and a lot of ideas. Jerry was not so much a talker. He was someone who could clearly see what needed to be done to resist oppression, to show what needed to be done for peace. He would cross the line. He would accept the consequences. He was definitely a man of action in his uh, quiet and unstated way. And uh, perhaps that's why he inspired so many people. It wasn't through his words as much as his deeds. Every minute of his life he just done. Uh, bringing about a more peaceful world. A big funeral? Yeah, at the funeral, uh, the funeral was uh, a very nice event. It was held by the uh, Franciscan Fathers in uh, outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And the uh, funeral itself was uh, a number of the uh, friars, um, Franciscan priests who knew Jerry from living in community with him, and then a great number of peace activists from uh, Chicago, Milwaukee, people came from Tucson, Minnesota, the West Coast. So it was an event that included several hundred people, and and really a great mix of people because um, the two groups, his religious order, some of whom are also definitely peace activists, and uh, and the peace activist community really um, had great stories to tell and connecting over Jerry. And, of course, Jerry's family was there, and they, and they were wonderful to meet. He survived by... I believe all 
six of his other siblings. And that was Mike Bremer from Voices for Creative Nonviolence with a tribute to his friend, Franciscan priest, Jerry Zawada, Zawada, who passed away 25th of July this year, aged 80. You are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. You could be listening in the old way on analogue. 8.55am, you might have a digital radio, and it's 3CR, or you could be sitting down with your computer or your laptop or your iPad and queuing into 3cr.org.au, or you could be streaming, and that happens for a week after the program, or you could be listening on a podcast where the programs are put into your computer for you to listen to at your leisure. 3CR. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence Keep Australia Out of US Wars Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare peace as union business US political and military influence and much more For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. Next to our monthly analysis of movements in GM issues and activism to expose many of the misinformation surrounding GMOs, I'm speaking with Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network, First, Bob, a nine-part doco series, which I believe is starting either tonight or tomorrow night. You need to register, but it's free. What's the story? Well, it's coming out of America. It's the uh, GM Free Activists of the United States doing a nine-part series. And, in fact, it starts tonight, I think, or tomorrow. People can go online at gmosrevealed.com. Dot com and uh, can sign up there to watch the nine parts. They'll be going out live and uh, internationally. Uh, they've got people from around the world talking about genetically manipulated food crops and the chemicals that are used on them, particularly, of course, the Roundup, which is sprayed extensively on uh, GM crops and ends up in our food supply as well. I think they'll probably be half an hour segments. So it's been under production for some time, and uh, I think the... Um, voices there will be experts and a lot of opinion leaders from around the world on the need to have GM free and to really transition out of the way that we produce our food at the moment. The industrial food production system has really failed. You know, their claims of feeding the world are obviously not true because we have about a billion people who are malnourished and starving. And yet there's one and a half times the amount of food that we need in the world right now to feed everybody well. We've got systemic problems. The global trade system is sending food where it's most profitable, not where it's needed. And I think that Australia is living on borrowed time as well, that we can't take our food security for granted either and that we need to get on with developing the new systems that are going to be needed when oil and phosphates run out when the climate really changes and uh, we're not necessarily going to be able to do the kind of agriculture that we do at the moment, which is very heavy on patented seed, chemical inputs, 
genetic manipulation, big machinery, and of course now increasingly information, which the smarty pants are uh, monopolising as well about how the environment is changing and what farmers need to do to actually just survive out there. What do you know about the anti-GM and activism in the US? It has become a very powerful movement. They've now got GM labelling on their foods. I don't know how effective it is yet because it's really just being implemented at the moment. But the fastest growing segment, as far as shoppers are concerned, is the GMO-free project, which has been going for over 10 years now, is uh, being run by the food industry itself. They had the good sense right from the outset to set up a committee of food processors and suppliers to steer the whole thing. There are now thousands of food products in the marketplace that people are flocking to which are labelled GM-free. And really that's the growth area of this. And as a result, you see that some of the big processes are now moving back towards GM-free food production as well because the GM really has uh, run its race. There are still only two traits, the Roundup tolerance, so you can spray the herbicide more often at higher doses, and that's now about 80% of the crops. And the other 20% is the so-called BT toxins, the insect toxins that kill certain pest insects. But, uh, of course, insects are adapting very, very quickly, and it just means more spraying of insecticides. It's the same old treadmill as before, except that now its time has come and it's uh, going to die a slow death and we need to be moving on to the ecologically friendly food production systems that will see us into the future and hopefully feed future generations as well. Homework for this second segment, Bob, so people need their pens ready. Comment required on the review of the National Gene Technology Scheme by the 15th of next month, which is September. What's at stake? Well, it's the latest review of this national scheme, which includes, of course, the federal government, all state and territory governments, in the regulation of genetically manipulated crops, and now other organisms as well, which may be coming into our environment. The new genetic engineering techniques that uh, have been developed over the last five years can be used to really modify any living organism and so researchers are working very quickly on mosquitoes, on trees, on fish, on any living thing you can imagine. There is some researcher working on modifying it to, of course, make it better, make it more productive, ultimately more profitable for someone. A lot of the work's being done by the big transnational companies, the ones we've already mentioned, in relation to farm chemicals and genetic manipulation. They're um, wanting to get their new organisms out into the environment as soon as possible, even though they've got no history of safe use. So this current review of the national scheme of regulation is really critical because while we're saying that uh, all of the new genetic manipulation techniques should be regulated and that their products should be regulated as well, the industry for its part is saying that despite the fact they've got no history of safe use either in the environment or in our food supply, that they should be deregulated right now and they want the law changed, they want the national scheme changed in order to facilitate that uh, deployment of their new organisms. Is this through gene editing or not? 
so-called gene editing. We're not calling it gene editing because, of course, that's the industry and science weasel word to try to make the things seem more safe, more accurate, more cheap, more friendly to everybody than the previous genetic manipulation techniques. It really involves the same cutting and pasting of DNA, involves, in fact, a lot more uncertainty because the off-target impacts of this new technique on the whole of the genome of a living organism is not yet fully worked out, but it's clear that there are many other changes that happen when you cut and paste a piece of DNA inside a living cell, and then, of course, uh, when that cell is cultured and grown up in the organism itself, whether it's an animal, a plant, an insect, or a microorganism, it's going to be uh, potentially very different from the one that you started with, despite them calling it gene editing it's not nearly as accurate or safe as claimed and this is where the debate is currently going on the research is going on in labs around the world a lot of new evidence coming out including the of course the genetic manipulation of human embryos animals particularly pigs for organ transplant into human beings is being done as well a very contentious area of research and of course they're claiming great, great successes, great accuracy and really no safety worries to be concerned about. We dispute that. We think the evidence is starting to accumulate again as it did with GM before that uh, the scientists who are looking down the microscope are not seeing the big picture. We must look at the very large environmental, ethical, social and other issues that are raised by these new GM techniques and the system of regulation it's supposed to make sure they're safe. There doesn't seem to be a lot of debate over it. It just seems to be newspapers and, and TV and radio just accepting these claims by these scientists. That, unfortunately, is because most of these science journalists, and they're getting fewer and fewer of them as the public media shrinks everywhere, uh, who actually understand what's going on. You can see that scientists specialise in very, very narrow specialised areas, but then a science journalist is expected to cover the whole gamut of science, which of course is absolutely immense, is producing a tsunami of information every day of the year. It's just a lot to keep up with, so unfortunately the critical evaluation of science and its activities and its products is really rather deficient, because unless you've got some philosophical or some general basis to work from to be skeptical about these things and to say no it's not in the public interest until we have really good evidence that's independently produced and not by produced by the com companies that are going to benefit from the product for instance until we can argue those kinds of things and we can get our science journalists saying the same thing and asking the hard questions of the scientists and the companies that are going to benefit from these new techniques and from the technologies and products that they produce, then you don't get a critical public discussion and debate about them. I think that's a really core problem. And even our universities, of course, have gone down the track of being privatised, now being dependent on corporate largesse to keep themselves afloat. Is there much debate overseas? The debate's patchy, but it is global, and we're certainly working with people overseas to try to ensure the debate goes on, and that's one of the reasons for this documentary series, this nine-part series, 
which starts tomorrow, to try to show the global panorama of this and to try to get a, a sense of urgency because there's very much at stake, particularly I was talking before about food security. Genetic manipulation of crops and food animals is um, being researched apace and it's taking us backwards, not forwards, to make sure that we and future generations are going to be able to be well fed with the nutritionist diet that's going to keep us healthy. We're just going in the wrong direction at the moment and we need more critical views and more critical minds on this, uh, not the gee whiz that we hear mostly in the science shows and in the, uh, the commentaries that go on on places like The Conversation, for instance, which is the university's website, which are very, very upbeat and not very critical about uh, the direction that all this is going in. This review, you're talking about the National Gene Technology Scheme. Really an automatic five-year review, so it was originally negotiated in 2002 by all the governments of Australia, the state and territory governments and the federal government. It's just come up in the natural course of events that um, there's a review on at the moment. But, of course, the industry and science, while they've been developing their new technologies, have also had time to develop for themselves an agenda of what they want to do. One of their other requests at the moment is that uh, the power of states like South Australia and Tasmania, which still remain GM-free and have policies not to allow genetically manipulated crop plants or animals to be grown within their states. The industry wants to take that power away from the states and leave it just up to the federal regulator to decide whether or not a uh, new genetically manipulated organism will be licensed for release and then it will be able to go national. The states won't be able to say anything about it. This would be the uh, aspiration of the industry and the science bods who are pushing their technology and its products forward. We are saying that the states should have reserve powers, that uh, when you've got things like trees, you've got... Um, potentially mosquitoes, Mediterranean fruit fly being genetically engineered in some laboratories, and a range of other organisms, fish, which have just been released in Canada, for instance. When you're talking about these things, you need to have states with reserve powers. For instance, the, um, the Tasmanian salmon industry has said, no way are we going to have genetically manipulated salmon in Tasmania but the Canadians are now allowing them to be grown and eaten there. It will be of concern that Tasmania could not say, no, we don't want those fish in our state, if that happened to come up in, at some time in the future. And similarly, I think um, Victoria uh, would have some of its unique characteristics in the food supply and food production at stake as well. There needs to be a thoroughgoing debate. We need to keep all the powers of all the governments in place and require the very rigorous, independent and precautionary regulation of these things both federally and within the states. And if people are going to write to this review, could you just give them a few pointers of what they should focus on? Well, we've sort of covered a couple of... Yes, I realise that, The OUTR yeah. should regulate all of the GM things, ensure that the state governments retain their powers, require all foods from the new genetic manipulation techniques to be safety tested independently and to be labelled, not to allow the contamination of the organic food supply as the industry currently 
proposes. I think that it's time for Australia to join the international community, go along with the UN Biosafety Protocol, which is an international agreement about the movement of genetically engineered organisms around the world as well. It was negotiated and came into force in 2001, and here we are 16 years later, and Australia still hasn't signed on to that, along with the USA, Canada, uh, Argentina, Brazil, and a couple of other countries that are holding out, saying, no, we want to be able to send our genetically engineered organisms, our products, our GM canola, cotton, cotton seed, and so on, anywhere in the world, and nobody can say no to it. You've got to take it whether you like it or not. So we should be part of the biosafety protocol, be taking a precautionary approach and respecting other people's sovereignty as well as our own. It's not just a trade issue, as our governments would have us believe. And how to go about putting your views in? Well, I think people will have to Google to get on a website at the federal government. It's the National Gene Technology Scheme Review, National Gene Technology Scheme Review, and Friends of the Earth do have a briefing as well. If uh, people want to go to the Friends of the Earth website to their emerging technology uh, website, Friends of the Earth is the place to visit. There they'll find out all the detail as well about making a submission. Or if they want to give us a bell from a landline, they can catch uh, Gene Ethics for a local call fee on 1300 133 868. And I'd be happy to talk with anybody who wants to have a go at um, making a submission, which I should say really only needs to be a page or even less, just making those few points, putting it into the uh, review at the health department, the federal health department are running the review. The only requirement is that there be a cover sheet attached and the cover sheet is available on that website that I mentioned, the National Gene Technology Scheme Review uh, where people can go to find the detail. And of course, right at the pivot of our food is the farmers and protection for the farmers. You're looking for a farmer protection fund. Why haven't we got one now to help farmers who get into strife with things like drift from GM crops? Yes, well, GM drift, of course, uh, the celebrated case in Western Australia, which the GM free farmer lost, the organic farmer Steve Marsh wasn't compensated for, the, um, for his losses as a result of the GM drift but recently there have also been a number of cases of spray drift which farmers are starting to speak up about. Earlier in the year there was very widespread spray drift onto, onto the cotton crop which is of course genetically manipulated but not protected from the stuff that was being sprayed by their neighbours. It must be very difficult to stop spray coming when... I mean, you can't get a day where there's no wind. It seems inevitable to me that something is going to drift. Yes, well, particularly when you're doing it from the air. If you've got a, yes. a, a light aircraft, uh, of course aerosols are created and they can go miles. And very often farmers can't tell where the spray drift came from. So the chances of getting compensated are rather small. Although there was a case recently in which a farmer, after being in the court for four years, was awarded $7 million for losses caused from a, a neighbour's spraying. I imagine that the, the bill for the lawyers, probably for both farmers, would have been a $1 million, say, after such a long case. We need to do something differently. I think that we need to 
start saying that the chemical industry itself needs to be responsible for its products and their use as well. They have these phony industry guidelines and things and then it's up to the individual grower or the crop dressing sprayer who actually does the spraying to actually implement those rules but nobody's protected and I think with the GM seed contamination and with the chemical contamination it's about time that we had a situation where there were levies on the companies on their sale of the GM seed on their sale of their various thousands of chemicals many of which are not properly assessed or regulated and which the consequences are pretty well unknown, that those, that money, that fund, the levies that come in, should be available to automatically compensate people who show that they have been harmed by drift, whether it's drift of uh, genetically manipulated canola from one farm onto another or some chemical that's come across and killed a crop. It's just about time that the industry had custodianship of its uh, product right through the process if we're going to continue to use them at all then it's time to clean up their act the latest scandal is that since last December more than 290,000 litres tens of thousands of drums of herbicides have needed to be recalled because of contamination with various other unauthorised chemicals and this is a, an ongoing problem Farmers have been spraying their crops with chemicals that have been contaminated with stuff that killed those crops, didn't know why it was happening, and now it turns out that the actual product that they were using contained the contaminant that was, was killing their crops. Who knows how that will play out? It's only in the last uh, three or four weeks that finally the regulator has owned up and said, yes, we've known about this contamination for the last year. We issued a recall but we didn't tell anybody. Farmers didn't know that these chemicals were contaminated, that they had been recalled, and the regulator has abysmally failed in this case to protect vulnerable farmers who are providing our food supply. It's unfair, it's unnecessary, because if we had those levies and we had farmer protection funds in each state and territory, then there would be pool of money which could compensate those who are adversely affected. And I'm talking now about the situation where farmers are actually having to sell up and, and go out because, because of the losses that they've sustained, which they can't recover. This is just another aspect of our food supply here in Australia, getting more and more insecure. The average age of our farmers now is in um, late 50s to 60s. We need young people coming into farming and we're not going to get it unless we change our ways, change the systems by which we produce our food and our fibre. Are you also saying that some farmers or many farmers aren't really aware of what they're actually spraying on their crops because they don't get enough information from their manufacturers? Well, I think the labelling is pretty pathetic. Research that's been done over the last several years, in 2015 in particular, the World Health Organisation's specialist committee on uh, the cancer hazards of various chemicals came out saying among other things that uh, Roundup, the most used herbicide in the world, is a probable human carcinogen. They'd had the evidence for a long time but nobody had been willing or game enough I suppose to speak up because the, la the backlash against that committee 
and its determination on the basis of very good evidence. They've been vilified. Every trick in the book has been pulled to try to say that um, they got it wrong. But one of the things that they also said was that the group of people who are most at risk of getting cancers and other illnesses from the use of chemicals, of course, are those who use them. And we see the kids around the suburbs in thongs, etc., spraying round up on the, um, on the roadsides and so on. They're among the people who use it on behalf of our local councils. Chemicals are ubiquitous. We just saw yesterday that the national, uh, Nick Nass, the national regulator of industrial chemicals, has just said that as a result of the change in federal government rules, they'll now be assessing only 0.7% of all the new chemicals that come into our um, production systems. Our industrial production systems will be full of new chemicals. So basically, the global chemical industry has got our government to the point where it's saying if something's assessed and approved in the USA where the rules are as shonky as hell or in Europe, then it should be automatically approved in Australia without really any further assessment, evidence or evaluation. It'll be allowed to be used here. In every area under this current government, and I must say under our state governments as well, the chemical industry is absolutely rampant and we've just exposed every day to thousands of chemicals. Occasionally, of course, we hear a warning that one is posing an exceptional threat. So, for instance, a toy pig imported was just recently banned because of the phthalates, the uh, chemical that softens plastics in the toy pig exceeded the regulated maximum of 1%. But that's a rarity. We hardly ever hear about anything uh, being non-conforming, and yet these things are being used in industry, exposing workers on farms, exposing farmers and farm workers, uh, and just in the environment generally now, we're exposed to a toxic brew of chemicals, most of which have never been properly assessed and certainly not assessed collectively. They assess them individually. They ought to be looking at what is the overall impact of this insult to our health, well-being and to our environment. Uh, and yet our government, is, particularly Barnaby Joyce, is just off in the other direction. It's scandalous and I hope that if we have a change of government, something might be done about it, but I wouldn't hold my breath because the chemical industry is so powerful that it seems to have been able to bully and bribe and force all of our governments into a powerless position in relation to chemicals. Something needs to be done about it. Golden rice, not as golden as what they made it out to be. This is a completely different topic again. This is the claim that the rice with beta-carotene, which becomes vitamin A when it's eaten, will sort of save the world, particularly those who admittedly around the world are short of vitamin A. Vitamin A deficiency is a big problem, but of course it's a dietary problem, it's a nutritional problem, and it's only one of a whole heap of things in poor diets. For example, polished rice, where a community is dependent, say, for 90% of its food on polished rice, it's going to be vitamin A deficient. 
but it's going to be deficient also in iron and a whole range of other trace elements. The smart idea is, oh, we'll make golden rice, which is genetically engineered to um, produce the precursor of vitamin A, beta-carotene, in slightly larger quantities than it would otherwise do, and we'll put that into the diet. We'll leave people still eating only their basic staple diet. We won't reorganise agriculture so these people can have green leafy vegetables, which will provide them with all the micronutrients that could be required, for instance, where a little bit of chicken or meat of other description will or milk will provide all the vitamin A that somebody requires to be healthy. Of course, supplementation programs to deliver vitamin A have been now going for some 20 years. Rate of vitamin A deficiency has been reduced dramatically in those other countries. But the idea of this golden rice has, of course, captured the imagination. Oh, it's going to do the trick. It's going to be the greatest thing. But the very interesting thing about the latest step is that uh, in order to try to get credibility for the new golden rice, the International Rice Research Institute has just applied, not only in the Philippines, where they're doing the basic research, but also to the US Food and Drug Administration, to Food Standards Australia New Zealand, and to Health Canada, to get approval for the use of vitamin A rice in the food supply in these countries. These are not countries that need vitamin A rice. So they're bringing it to the first world where opinion can be manipulated, where the regulators are tame cat, where they're going to give a tick to golden rice as the next step in pushing this rice down the necks of people in the third world who have got poor diets and are vitamin A deficient, yes, big problem but doing nothing about the right of these people to have good balanced diets where their vitamin A needs and their other nutritional needs are met in a much more socially just and fair way that would be the way forward and uh, the debate has now been going on for 20 years golden rice still doesn't exist farmers don't want to grow it because it doesn't yield as well as other rice varieties. So far, they haven't got public acceptance either. There are still many barriers to golden rice, but meanwhile, they're asking, in our case, Food Standards Australia and New Zealand, to give it a tick and say, yeah, go for it, guys. Uh, it's a great idea, and it's going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread, and it's going to solve this problem. Uh, it's not a solution. It's a short-term fix, and uh, what we need to be doing is working with people like the United Nations Rapporteur on the right to food and saying everybody in the world has a right to adequate nutrition. And thanks to Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name is Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter.
Three weeks in Greece and three weeks in Sicily. Doesn't sound a long time to get a good handle on what's happening, how people are doing and to soak up the culture. But if you and your partner between you speak Greek and Italian and Sicilian, that can be a different story. Joe Malinaggi, musical programmer here at 3CR, and he's the Sicilian and his partner is the Greek. Start, Joe, with what is affecting all of Northern Hemisphere in late summer, and that's the extreme heat. How were people coping, as you experienced, in both countries? Yeah, I was basically uh, in those two countries from mid-June to the end of July. What I saw when I was in Sicily, they had very extreme temperatures much earlier. So late June was already mid-August type weather conditions like high 30s and getting close to 40. And already there was uh, fears of, um, believe it or not, bushfires. There's not too many nature reserves in Sicily, so there's a lot of concern when uh, these bushfires happen. Unlike in Australia, many of our bushfires happen when there is uh, electrical activity. There wasn't any electrical activity in the weather climate, so what was happening... Unfortunately, people were lighting bushfires, so we had a weird situation um, like that. So it's pretty dire in that sense. Um, it's about keeping jobs. It's quite tricky, but yeah. That was happening already when I was in Greece, mid to late July. In the space of three weeks, um, I was on the uh, Ionian Islands and, and a place called Delphi. We had two severe electrical storms over a space of 24 hours, one is unusual, two is very, very unusual because it doesn't rain in July in Greece. So there's just some uh, anecdotal uh, evidences that I saw while I was there as a traveller and talking to the locals and everybody was obviously very surprised. So, yeah. Well, we'll stay with Greece for a few moments and talk about, some say it's um, an unstable political system, situation, others call it a disaster. What did you learn while you were there? To tell you the truth, with the with the people, some uh, younger younger folks in their twenties and in thirties, uh, the conversations I've had, and obviously conversations with older people, people like my parents' age, uh, you know, in their sixties and seventies, some may maybe have romanticism going back to the drachma and things like that, and it seems to be when I was there a couple of years ago that. They didn't want to take the money to save themselves from the EU, but they wanted to stay in the EU. Many did actually not want to remain in the EU uh, because they wanted to keep their country. I didn't get any disagreements when I basically would say, well, Greece has lost their country because the amount of money they've borrowed is quite ridiculous. And so now you have these austerity measures, which most people would obviously know about. And so if you're working for yourself, we have a taxi driver that we've got friendly with. He's basically paying 66% tax. So it seems like the working person is paying for all this. I haven't seen and, and spoken to any people who say that uh, the corporate area is paying their share as well. Disaster. No one says a disaster, but they basically say it's quite hard and obviously, and, and it even goes back to when the euro the common denominator of money was introduced, that things skyrocketed. We had many reports here in Australia about listening to those sort of conversations and uh, everybody still talks about that. There has been some money from the Euro Fund to do capital works, etc., etc., like the Olympics and all that sort of business. 
and the metro. As a traveller, during June and July, you walk in the streets of Athens. Obviously, it's littered with uh, graffiti. Buildings are crumbling, but there are lots of little bars and stuff popping up in all these crumbling buildings. So, uh, aesthetically, they look fantastic as, from an interior designer perspective about how you can retrofit places to make it a place of commercialisation. The only other thing is how much the people are spending when they're out, when they're in these bars. It's the same old story. It said during holiday time and tourism is the big time. The service industry in uh, hospitality industry in Greece is been well, well refined for many many years because that is number one economy. Uh, whether they're going to make money, we know many youths are working you know, two or three jobs. No one's t- told me it's a disaster. Politically, it might be a disaster, but I didn't see any sort of uh, rumblings that the, this government will be kicked out at the next election. But I did speak to some artists. And there's one artist who left the military junta, went to Canada, became a Canadian citizen. He had a really interesting exhibition at the EU that I spoke, uh, that I saw, and I spoke to him for quite a while. And he basically was saying that the referendum that Greece had about whether they were going to take the money or not couple of years ago was basically a ploy to get rid of the radicals within the government and did they well maybe maybe but i mean who are the radicals and what is the term radical <laughs> yeah. well it's a so-called leftist government isn't it certainly from the foundations the ones they've had before it is very much so and i think even a lot of the older people were sick and tired of what was going on so i think there is plenty of support still within the, uh, whatever you want to call the common person. I don't know about the business sector, how it's all working out and how they're going with their repayments and austerity. Who do the people blame for this problem? Has everyone got a different opinion? I think there's different opinions. I think uh, we've had conversations saying that, yes, um, uh, the system of uh, collecting taxes and using this money for resources and for development within the country was obviously not working very well for, for a long, long time. There's obviously been conservative governments, which is the same old story all, all the world round, where they've squandered money. And it's within the people themselves that uh, they were getting too used to dealing with black money, I guess, because they didn't want to pay tax. And then you hear these stories of people that don't know how true it is, oh, the Greeks, they don't, they don't work. They're lazy. That's a problem which also is, is hit to Sicily in the south of Italy. It's a matter of lifestyle. It's quite funny because tourists go to these countries and they say, oh, isn't it fantastic? The lifestyle they've got, you know, there's the, they do the siesta. It's a sort of an issue with climate. It's going back to what we say many times before. I mean, uh, when the animals rest in the middle of the day, well, why don't we rest as well? It's a different lifestyle. You work harder at, late at night when people might be socialising, because that's how it works. I mean, you work when the conditions are favourable. But I didn't see examples of laziness. People complain here, and socio-political discussions are that we work too hard. So what does that mean? We end up spending all our money on getting massages and chiropractic treatment because they're working too hard. (laughs) What about the refugee issue in Greece? Going back to the streets of Athens, it looks pretty ugly and uncomfortable, beggars. I could be uh, generalistic and and, um, stereotypical and say that they're not Greeks and they're just basically hanging out in the main squares. Obviously summertime is a different story. People stay outside to keep cool from their apartments or whatever accommodation they have. I think the borders might be tightened soonish if the rest of Europe don't pull their weight. Then you've got the the long-term gypsy story where people still blame 
gypsies and playing that, you know, they're driving around in expensive cars and that sort of stuff. But that's obviously evident, but I don't want to buy into that for the cause of, of greater problems, really. The begging situation is pretty intense. Yeah, you end up giving money to a lot of people in that case. A lot of stories about people who originally came from the country areas maybe a couple of generations ago, can't get work now, they've lost their jobs, they're redundant, whatever, moving back into the country areas? I saw evidence of that a couple of years ago, a bit, a bit further than that, that um, a lot of young people who had, who had come from the country, families there, uh, access to land, were returning back to the country because uh, the minimum you need is to feed yourself. That's what was happening, definitely. If you're educated got very good qualifications, there's very little chance of work if you're under 25. The figures that I saw last year and this year hasn't changed, it's that unemployment rate under 25 is 45% and it could be even increasing and certainly I didn't see any evidence of that decreasing. We're going to talk about a potato movement <laughs> and that's all part of the austerity movement, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. We were talking a bit before, um, Jan, about this. It sort of really emerged about four or five years ago the issue of people not having money and little and little communities not having money, so they go back to, uh, you know, for want of a better term, a barter system. So uh, almost a skill share thing. So uh, you know, a mechanic fixes someone's car and then he gets some, you know, half a dozen eggs or whatever, a chook, blah blah blah. So that's what's been happening. And so certainly now it's been dubbed this potato movement. Potato seems to be a, a monetary transaction. In the end, uh, it's about getting rid of middlemen who are taking all the profits of any sort of commerce in the disguise of logistics or whatever. What sort of foods and things are they bartering? I think it's basically the same, same as here. Anything that can be grown. Uh, mind you, going back to the climate issue, there's been some weird things with some crops that have been growing. Uh, I certainly, I know... Two years ago, friends of ours that uh, were in the north of Greece, they had some fruit that was ready to ripe and it would just fall off the trees. The tomatoes, I think, have had a dodgy year. So, yeah, it's just about what the mean climate has been in the winters and the summers. It's really starting to take effect, and certainly in Sicily. I was there last year. A friend of mine was harvesting carobs. This year, there's no carobs in the trees. Who's going to be talking about that one as far as analytical data basically yeah they're growing whatever they can it's and a fertile it seems to country work. apart from climate change obviously there's lots of olive olive grows mm-hmm. everywhere do they need a lot of water i guess not in essence because they know they're not going to get water for th- three months of the year and so it depends on how the rains uh, come there wasn't any conversations that i and i saw plenty of olive groves and was described some specific ones in the delphi valley which is yeah, it was quite amazing haven't heard any experience saying, oh, we're suffering with the olives this year. But the other thing is with that rain, those two big downpours that happened in July, that could be an issue with certainly some of the summer fruit. Now, you mentioned art or an artist before. How has the austerity affected the, the culture and the art movement in Greece? To sidetrack that, I was also there during a very, very, very big art exhibition called Documenta 14. And it's something that's come out of Germany. And this year, so the Twin Cities was Kassel in Germany and Athens. Yeah, it's a funny thing. During massive austerity, I want the arts to be a big focus, you know, money to be put into the arts. But there was certainly a lot of political angst about Germany providing or the EU providing money for this massive art thing called Documenta 14. They wanted the, the local art scene to be involved in it. The local art scene was involved in it, but certainly not directly. I think the head curator 
from documents that said we're not interested in the local art movement. It's about about how Athens breathes and lives, uh, and also the whole world is related. So it's just the whole world of expression coming through. And so there was a lot of pieces within that art. It was just huge. I've got a massive broadsheet and a travel diary here of stuff. There was some graffiti that popped up every now and then. So you know, on the street there was uh, politicisation and things and uh, quote you a couple of them. I'll just have to uh, remember what they were. But, um, for example, the discussion there about waiting for the after effects of Documenta 14 in Athens. In one massive gallery space, exhibition centre, it closed before it was supposed to. <laughs> Friends of mine said, yeah, well, that happens. Is it ambivalent or is it just something about once again, when the big names are in town, you make it all look good, and then when everybody disappears, the volunteers disappear and um, and the money disappears. Once again, as a traveller, it was pretty impressive if you want to see some expressions of artists from around the world, and there was even some Australian ones. One of the uh, street arts was called Dear Documenta. I refuse to exotize, I don't know whether it was exercise or a spelling mistake, myself to increase your cultural capital. And once again, there's, as I said, there's some very educated people in Athens. Uh, they're very literate. They're very well read. Um, there was some other amazing, uh, interesting graffiti. I don't know how old it was, but it was from one of the galleries and just in front of the Acropolis and, and uh, in amongst these ruins on top of a building, it says, Welcome and enjoy the ruins. And right next to that piece of graffiti, there's a photocopy thing with 10 points, Declaration for Rights of Refugee Ramblers. There's lots of um, commentary and stuff like that all the time and it was very interesting uh, one set of posters included the platypus a rat being caught by a trap and an owl the one with the platypus said the usual way to preserve conformism is through pseudo-criticism against it so there's a bit of food for thought if anybody's well read and where does new music come into this because that's your interest isn't it Generally, I, I do go there and I want to listen to Greek music or even uh, sort of uh, folk or roots music, but also I'm, I'm interested in uh, maybe some some social commentary. There is hip-hop. It's very hard for me because I'm not a Greek speaker, so I need it translated. That certainly is happening. You've got uh, Africans now who are Greeks, and that's really in the mix. It's happening right now. Uh, same as Sicily. Africans in the mix of uh, Sicily and Italy. And I did meet some friends here from Senegal who know musicians here from Senegal. That is in the mix and that's going to change. And so I guess uh, uh, Greece and Italy are uh, predominantly being monocultures in a sense. It's like Australia, it's going to be quite interesting what happens in the next 15. It's already happening, but certainly in the next 15, 20 years. There is a, a music culture, but uh, generally to find out about what mu- where the music is, posters are plastered on the walls and poles everywhere and uh, through social media. And do you believe the Greek people are open to that new cultures coming in? Once again, I think it's the younger people that are more, that are more open, pretty straightforward. Uh, I guess, yeah, maybe they benefit travelling freely through the EU, although obviously there's much money to travel with the youth in Greece, only the ones that have got uh, assistance from parents and grandparents. Yeah, it's the same old story, just conservatism with ideals about, you know, lost in nostalgia about what the drachma was. Sure, that's identity. It's a big part. It's a big part. But uh, I think the youth know that we're all in the same boat a lot more than people in their 50s and 60s and 70s. 
Well, on to Sicily, and I'm sure you must be sick of people asking you, <laughs> have you been to see the house of Montalbano? <laughs> yes. But, but I will say it. Yes. No, definitely. I'm quite happy to admit to that one, Jan. It's a funny one. From here, our the, the, uh, Sicilian Australians and other Italians about this series called Montalbano and uh, set in Sicily, uh, a writer called Andrea Camilleri wrote all these stories. So they're sort of nice police stories with some stereotypical characters. But once again, folks, it's Hollywood. The main actor is not Sicilian, so they couldn't even find a Sicilian to do the role. Although... In the episodes of Young Montalbano, he was Sicilian. <laughs> I, I should premise that, um, look, in 2011, we had a family friend who took us on the Montalbano tour, and he was, he's a poet and uh, writer, a bit of an environmentalist, a very good way to have a personal tour of the sites that you see in the film, like the town of Ragusa and the beach where he, you know, where he swims and the house he lives at at the beach. It's a funny thing, but Sicily, a, a lot of you know, family in that say, well, it's not really Sicily because... You never see a lot of people. It's always pretty quiet. It's just them. So it's done during siesta time, you know. So uh, there's an element of romanticism, but it's done heaps for tourism. So Sicily is picking up with tourism big time. Some municipalities are slow on it, and then I wonder why. There is organised crime. I think that stifles a lot of things, but once again, the youth are sick and tired of it. So the youth... And, you know, want to live and enjoy the, the the things of the Western world. As I said, a lot of towns have benefited from this because people go and visit the sites that you see in the series. So that's quite good. That you know, my main concern with tourism, once again, is it's not about keeping it poor or you go to some place where nobody goes. It's just that when I go to Sicily and Greece, I want to hear Greek music, I want to hear Greek Sicilian music, I want to hear the language. I'm not interested in listening, going to a bar and just playing music that I can hear in Melbourne. And that's what's happening. It's very evident in Athens, and it's happened evident in Sicily. I'm in touch with many, many musicians in Sicily because obviously it's easy because I can speak the language. People fighting very hard to still sing in Sicilian. It's very hard because when they leave the island to travel within Italy, everybody speaks Italian. It's basically trilingual. So I've got no problem about people speaking Italian. But keeping your language the same as all around the world. Music is a big part of it. A lot of musicians I know are socio-political, talking about independence in Sicily and how Sicily's been bled dry from Italy. There has obviously been a lot of Euro money, but it's also been abused as well. A big part of the Montalbano books and films are the food. <laughs> um, what did you... <laughs> Yes. Have you noticed a change in my body since I come back, Jane? Is that a hint? No, I'm just saying, is it a diet of fish, fish and more fish? Well, certainly in, in the Greek islands. We, we saw a little bit of the Ionian islands on the coast. You do have some really good fish. The fish market's pretty amazing. Catania, in Syracuse, they're the towns that I know well. Uh, the fish market's uh, you know, a daily. It's extraordinary what you see. I'm not used to going to the big market, to the fish market here, but... The fish that you see coming out of the Mediterranean, I think it's coming from the Mediterranean. <laughs> well. Or some lab somewhere, I don't know. It's quite extraordinary. The, the cuisine is being refined all the time. Traditionally, the Sicilian cuisine is very simple. They really push for good ingredients, and they don't want the ingredients to be buried in some sauce. They want to taste what they're supposed to be eating. But things are uh, changing, certainly a lot more uh, vegetarianism, veganism is very evident. It's happening. 
Do you understand why? There is an ethical element to it, pretty much, yeah. Meat was, uh, was a treat, certainly. Uh, that's why so many people migrated, because there wasn't any food. It wasn't jobs, but there wasn't the food. My family comes from a provincial town, so they had access to land. And it's a very uh, rich agricultural area. Once again, the Mount, Mount Etna helps Sicily a lot. It's kept the soil alive for millennia. Is there more than one volcano there? Etna is the main volcano. It's obviously got lots of, lots of craters within its slopes and everything like that. So it's ridiculously monitored because it is a serious tourist attraction. So I had a look at it this year again. Uh, some friends I was with and my partner went up as close as you can to the crater. I've been closer in the past when there was less OH&S issues. That's a huge tourist thing. People freak out, but it's just a re- you have a relationship with it because it's a type of volcano that doesn't do that massive eruptions and it's, it's a slow, the lava is slow, so it's very manageable. They actually manage the lava flows. That's the story. It is extraordinary. The centre of Sicily is quite harsh and it's very diverse. I had some nice couscous with fish in Trapani in the western part of Sicily. Once again, we can't beat having local knowledge because I went into restaurants that there's no way I would have ever walked into them if I hadn't have been told to go there. That's the treat of travelling with uh, people who know the local area. And I think that's what I'd love tourism to be rather than dumbing it down and, and giving you your Western food when you're in a foreign country. I mean, hotels is one different thing. But when you're out in the streets, I'd rather stay home. You know, it's, it's a funny one, Jean. It's a funny one. Another feature of the, the Camilleri books and the <laughs> films as well, I can't get away from this, <laughs> is the fights between the different mafia clans. That's pretty much an old school story, but it does still exist. It's been kept pretty quiet in my upbringing. Uh, but once you meet friends who run businesses, you hear some stories. Personally, I don't know how you could run a business there, but you'd need to have someone else talking about that one who's been involved in business, and I know people that do travel there for work. So, yeah, businesses run and operate. It, it has to exist, but uh, as I said, uh, with a lot of people that I know, there's certainly a, a battle. I know people that are battling every day. There are in grounds but there are also steps backwards too because it's so linked in with government and the church. What about refugees coming over from Africa? This year I didn't see or have access to see certain things specifically. Last year I was down um, in the right southeast corner and uh, there was some boats that were just left as almost monuments, which is really weird, and some people thought, why are they there, get rid of them. It's still happening. Port of Catania gets a few. Uh, certainly the islands in the south of um, Sicily is still happening. You know, hundreds and hundreds coming. Italy is certainly open to it at the moment, but I think they've threatened also to close their borders unless Europe pulls its weight more. But, you know, really in the end, I don't buy into the discussions when, when some people whinge about uh, this happening. And I just have to remind them about colonialism. Because Italy went to Africa. So you've got to keep reminding people about these things. <laughs> Unemployed youth, are they staying there? Or like in many cultures, when things get bad, they move? Yeah. Anecdotally, uh, I know lots of uh, young Italians here in uh, Melbourne. They're mainly coming from the north. It's really difficult for some coming from the south because they haven't got money. To get educated, they go to the mainland, to the main peninsula of Italy. 
and they really can't return back to Sicily because the work is minimal unless they're going to try and do some hospitality and it's so, such a short season once again. You know, I've had family members set up businesses in, in, ta- in their town and it's not supported. It's quite fickle. It's really, it can be quite mean how some people support one business and support another. And once again, it can be just, you know, what their family tie is, where they belong. So it's very frustrating. But yeah, I was obviously telling uh, a few young people that if you want to try and come to Australia, come before you're 25 at least, uh, certainly before you're 30, but before you're 25, see if you can study English here. Uh, there is an organisation here set up by uh, recent Italian immigrants that help, uh, through the Italian consulate that help young migrants or people travelling here about you know what's what their rights are and things like that. Pretty much a voluntary thing. The youth want to leave. And it's uh, pretty weird it's talking to many other immigrants who are first-generation immigrants who are learning the story that I felt as a second generation. My parents are the first-generation migrants. I look back and think, yeah, well, the problems are still the same. Uh, they freak out that they're leaving their country. They're torn between, you know, whether the, you know, to keep going. Look at me. I mean, I've got, I've got lots of family in Sicily, so I have a... I have a personal reason to go, but I could say no. I could say, well, what's it going to do to me? Is it creating more pain for me? But it's in the end, it's identity. And it's also busting the stereotypes. I mean, the musicians that I meet, are uh, they can't believe that I can be bothered doing this. You know, they're, they're very grateful, but they can't believe that someone's interested in that. Because through music, uh, they're the original news, you know, they're the original storytellers, the news readers. And who are these? All sorts of genres, you know, reggae, some reggae hip-hop, folk singers, but popular song. Folk singers, not really the word. So, And they're all trying to keep, show. actually, they're, they're showing how Sicily has been cosmopolitan because of all the different people that have come there and taken the wealth. It was never a poor island, never. And the wealth is still visible, <laughs> but it's just been sucked away. It's been the playground for Europe. It's about telling those stories, uh, remaining how resilient the people have been. Uh, a musician I've been friends with for quite a long time did recently a project about the earthquake that um, devastated most of, um, of Sicily, certainly the southeastern part, and when it got rebuilt, got rebuilt in Baroque, in Baroque style. So now it's a UNESCO region because of the extraordinary Baroque buildings and churches that are there. So just reminding people how resilient they have been in the past and to stick to their guns rather than just be submissive and take the cash or a handout. Have your parents been back? Parents went back quite a few times. That's why I have still a connection. And how did they find the changes? Oh, I hadn't been back. My, my dad's passed away now. My mum's you know, in her 80s. It's really hard for her. It's, everybody's got personal stories about why they left. A lot of families brought all their families here. My dad wanted to bring his family, but it was a large family. It was impossible. And, and, uh, and you've got people that aren't generally very adventurous you know they know their land they've got everything there they've got access to the space they love and they don't want to leave it but you know having said that the ones that left enabled the ones that stayed to get some sort of weird middle class existence you know really to survive in this otherwise it would have just been mayhem so that's the perversity of it so there's pain they love seeing their family but they're, they're torn they they really stopped because it wasn't internet in those days so you know um their memories of what it was like in the 50s. And so they transferred that here. I mean, this, these stories have been told by many immigrants, and it's a time capsule. 
So it's good in one sense that the old language is there. I mean, I speak words that when I mention them, just subconsciously they come out in conversation. People look at, do a double take, going, wow, we haven't heard that sort of stuff for years. And it's mainly with the young people. It's the, the, the language of their grandparents. My parents are like their grandparents. So that's been going on. But not the majority, overall majority, uh, I've got no regrets about coming to Australia because of the chance to start again. As I keep reminding people, it's not about having a go at them, but it came at a cost. The wealth of the migrants came at a cost, and we know what that cost was for the, the original people here. It can be complex and simple at the same time. Just finally, Joe, there is a connection <laughs> here at 3CR. I find it really uh, interesting, and it's quite valuable to listen to a program on uh, Tuesday nights called the Greek Resistance Bulletin. A bit of it's in English, and a bit of it's in Greek. It's a really good way um, to catch up on... Well, I pers- particular perspective anarchism certainly is very visible in Greece certainly the north and you see it in Athens and we have I think it still is basically classified an anarchist suburb pretty much next door to Parliament House it's like having an anarchist suburb in Fitzroy and close to the CBD in Melbourne so it's really good on Tuesday nights to check out the Greek resistance bulletin and um, keep up the date food for thought folks always it's from 10 to 11 and if you'd like to hear more of Joe and his music, Sans Frontier, which is on today. You've missed it for this week, 12 to 2. And also he's part of the group doing Music Matters, 12 p.m. on Friday. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m. Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything can change. Over the past two years, I've spoken with many members of the Brunswick-Coburg anti-conscription commemoration campaign about their events to highlight the successful no vote in the 1916 and 1917 referenda. Art and culture activities, lectures, a street tour, a play, and the most recent was a very successful conference in Brunswick involving historians, biographers and anti-war activists. Titled The 1916-17 Anti-Conscription Campaign, Impact and Legacies. And all of these honouring those who determined that no more young Australian conscripts would be sacrificed to Europe's dirty trade war. Those last three words were attributed to Archbishop Daniel Mannix. The next event, which should be a fitting finale to the campaign, is a street opera, Serenading Adela, which will involve singers and street band musicians and an unruly mob to march along Sydney Road to what was then Pentridge Jail in Coburg for a reenactment of what happened when anti-war protester Adela Pankhurst was imprisoned in October 1917 for four months for repeatedly defying the Unlawful Association Act and speaking at rallies against the government and conscription. When offered release on bond if she promised not to speak in public again, she chose jail. I'm speaking today with the artistic director of Serenading Adela, Jeannie Marsh. Jeannie, before we talk about Adela and her anti-war activities and suffragette campaigns earlier in her life, 
I'd love to focus on your long career in the arts, first as an opera singer, choir leader, composer, teacher, and lately involved in community music. I first saw you many years ago at the North Melbourne Town Hall with the Canto Coro Choir. Can we talk about your career in a little bit more details, particularly focusing on the grassroots activities? Well, Canto Coro really was a big turning point for me in my life and it, yeah, was a watershed moment really when I realised that this was uh, a sort of singing that I just totally connected with and working with the the choir for whom that work meant just so much. Um, So particularly the Chilean community and the Greek community, so the the words of Pablo Neruda and the music of uh, Theodorakis. So since I had that that experience then in in 1993, uh, that really solidified what I'd been feeling some time that was uh, becoming less and less uh, excited by the uh, work in opera and classical music that I was doing and looking more and more for things where I could really communicate a message that was uh, really meaningful to people today and to work in a more informal way with people than rather than the formality of the classical world so then I spent the next uh, 11 years working intensively with Cantacoro while also continuing on with lots of classical music as well and teaching and all sorts of things singing uh, working with the guitar sort of cabaret duet all sorts of things but yeah then um, after a spell of teaching at distance education center in Thornbury teaching VCU music. Um, I did that for some years and I really, I found that the thing that I was really missing in in my teaching work was that, uh, which was by distance, so it was very quiet, I was missing being in a room with a a choir. That was the thing that I really, really was longing for, getting back into working with community choirs. And of course, the Brunswick-Coburg campaign choir is not the only one you've been involved with. No, no. At the moment I'm involved with five different choirs, so five is sort of the maximum I've ever uh, experienced at once and it really does your head in, really, because they all have, uh, apart from the music, there's all all those very, very different people and needs. So, yes, uh, for the last year I've been um, running a group called Zing, which is um, a Dutch choir, so I don't have Dutch heritage, but... um, I'm fascinated by this project and so, um, yeah, singing Dutch pop songs and um, working with the Dutch choir. And um, that's one. And then the Elwood Community Choir at my local neighbourhood house. So I've started that last year and that's great fun too, bringing people together in the Elwood community. They've never really had a choir there before, so that's been fun. And then I run a choir at the Bomorris Footy Club with um, start with the women of the footy club and still basically that and they like to do 1960s uh, girl group songs and full choreography and so we have a lot of fun with that and then just recently uh, really uh, cemented the idea of a climate choir so that's that's a big thing so uh, to actually get more singing happening at all these Topadani events and uh, other uh, climate change activities are going on so that's been a wonderful chance to really um, bring people together who wanted to do more at demos than chanting they wanted to actually sing 
How did you get involved with the Brunswick Coburg Group? Um, that's uh, through Nancy Atkin, who I've known since Katakoro days. So I met her there uh, in, in 1993, and um, we've been friends and working together ever since then. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was about just over a year ago that um, she asked me to uh, dinner at her place with a bunch of local activists and historians and uh, who are working on the Brunswick-Coburg anti-conscription commemoration campaign to really tell people in the community and acknowledge the amazing activism 100 years ago led by the people of the northern suburbs of Melbourne against the uh, introduction of conscription. And into that came a song? Yes, out of that came the idea to, to really mark this event. One thing we could do, as well as the, the conference and exhibition, all sorts of things that were happening, was to commission a song. Uh, and that happened uh, through the city of Moreland, came through with that uh, grant to commission Stephen Taberner to write a song that was drawn from two workshops with local residents in Brunswick and Coburg about the effects of war and conscription on their families and friends over the last hundred years. So he came up with a magnificent song that pulls together stories from First World War, Second World War and the Vietnam War. And we've now performed that about six times since January with a choir of about 60 people who emerged out of nowhere to, <laughs> who really wanted to be part of this this extraordinary experience and so that's that's how we uh, came to have this whole musical angle of the um, anti-conscription commemoration activities and out of that came the idea that we should reenact the scene that took place a hundred years ago with Adela Pankhurst at Pentridge which involved 300 people roving by uh, one summer evening in January to stand under her cell window and serenade her with, with um, solidarity forever and the red flag. Let's go back a hundred years. Can you talk about her life leading up to that trailing here in Melbourne? Yes, well, she was the daughter of the famous suffragette, Emmeline Pankhurst, and had been very, very involved in, in the, uh, the huge and long campaign of the suffragettes, and particularly campaigning in the north of England and in Scotland and really completely burnt herself out actually working like a dog on that campaign and believing it in it fully and she actually had a bit of a collapse um, in uh, 1915 and stepped out of that campaign and she got interested in the anti-war movement and her mother was very very uh, pro-war the First World War, and she basically disowned Adela and sent her to Australia on a one-way ticket. And Adela actually spent time in jail in England? Yes, she, she did for the suffragette activities, and, and she was just always... Um, the, the two things that were just always driving her, she was very concerned about women's rights and social justice and um, poverty were, were really the... as well as... I mean, the suffragette movement was one aspect, but she was very focused on the rights of women all through her life. So, yes, yeah, she'd been in jail there, but uh, it was mainly, yeah, when she got to 
she got to Melbourne and was welcomed with open arms by Vida Goldstein and Cecilia Johns and the big campaign that was happening here with Frank Anstey and all the amazing stuff that was going on at that time, Melbourne being the capital at that time, it was centred here. And she just immediately just, just found her feet and just became a key person in the um, activism here in Melbourne for that campaign and was just seen at every street corner and, and huge rallies on the Yarra banks of 40,000 people and her speaking and her going all over Australia to speak. She became a very, very famous figure for her um, activism and uh, eventually was jailed for, um, yeah, for civil disobedience. What did she do to gain that title, civil, civil disobedience? Yeah, it was a particular campaign where she was, they were protesting about the food shortages and the desperate poverty that had um, affected families here in Australia as a result of the war. So one thing was the, the, the men were all off in, in Europe, but also the... Uh, the profiteering here, so the prices of goods here had become really gone through the roof and times were extremely difficult and, and people were, were actually suffering massive food shortages. So she was protesting on the, on the steps of Parliament. And the special laws against people doing that sort of thing? There were, there were. So they really tried to clamp down and because Billy Hughes was you know, very keen to put a lid on this activism which was getting in the way of his wanting to get the, the conscription in too. So yes, they jailed her. And so she was in, in jail yeah, from, from the end of uh, 1917 for a number of months. And the conditions in jail were pretty horrific at that time, not that they're not now, mm. but particularly for women? Yes, apparently. I mean, she was... Uh, um, a very, very tough woman and had, had been through lots of depredations herself, uh, she found her time in Pentridge um, very, very distressing. Apparently it was a time of deep trouble and, and physical hardship for her. And so maybe the word got out to her friends and that's why um, on a hot summer's night they all just decided to go and cheer her up and sing. <laughs> and that's what you're going to reenact. We are. And we know about this event because it was very well covered in the media at the time, in the Age and the Argus and um, in uh, magazines at the time. And Did they condemn her for doing that? Uh, well, there's a bit of uh, jokes made about it. There's a bit of trivialising of it, you know, and it says that, um, you know, 300 people, uh, mainly socialists, mainly women, came outside and there was a sort of a party atmosphere and then it all uh, uh, ended up in, in people having a bit of a party as well. And so, yeah, there's, there's not a strong condemnation of it in the, in the press reports of the time, but there's a bit of sort of uh, trivialising it and, and seeing it as a bit of a joke. But actually, you know, it must have been a, a mighty event. So I don't think there's many uh, experiences we can point to of where people have, you know, gone through the streets at a time when protesting was... Um, uh, a bit of a dangerous act and, and actually stood outside the jail and apparently they let off fireworks as well and called out cooey and they sang, yeah, the solidarity forever and the red flag so it doesn't get any more um, sort of rabble-rousing than that. It's a bit reminiscent of the Ring Around Fairly years ago. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, that's right. And and I've been, uh, as part of the research for this, I've been talking to to the women who are involved in the Save Our Sons campaign and, and other um, campaigns more in our era, that, yes, they do, do definitely have resonances to today. And that's another reason that Nancy and uh, the team and uh, Lynn Beaton, who was also very involved in the, the idea for this project, that it's, it's really very timely to tell this story again. You know, this is a time when choral activism really has a place, I think, it wasn't long after they had their sing-along in the street and their march along the street that she was actually released? Yes, yes, she was released early in 1918. Uh, she'd, she'd done her time, but it was uh, very, very frustrating for her because uh, she'd actually... She got married in September of uh, 1917 and w- was in jail a few weeks later, so she all the hopes of just being married and then in jail and she didn't know how it was all going to end. And also she actually missed the second vote, uh, which took place in December of that year, the second conscription vote. She she was locked up in jail and couldn't participate, so that must have been unbelievably frustrating for her. How many months now have you been planning the street opera? Yeah, I think it all goes back to you know, about a year and a half, really. It's, um, yeah, about that long. And we're very lucky that, uh, yeah, Creative Victoria came on board and um, so we've got state funding to create this street opera. And we had, yeah, City of Moreland funding. And once that came through, we thought, well, <laughs> keep going. And, and because there was this really uh, very inspiring response with so many people wanting to sing in the choir for Stephen Tabner's work. And so we're um, keeping in touch with those 60-odd um, people and, and putting out the word, to, because we're looking for 300, basically. And are you going to be marching along Sydney Road as well? Yes, well, that's the plan. So we're, over the next um, month or so, we'll be working out all those logistics of uh, you know what routes we'll take and... So we'll reenact it as as a demo, basically, in the same way that you organise a demo with meeting spots and join the thing there, but also be street bands and uh, accordion and all sorts of things to give that um, exciting atmosphere that, that must have been at the time, but a lot of singing. So it's, it definitely will be uh, a singing-led event. And then we've got um, a wonderful uh, young actor-singer, Lisa Marie Parker, who is actually going to be playing Adela and singing her words because Adela wrote a lot and we've got heaps of um, her amazing sort of uh, pacifist polemic and she was a very rousing speaker so Lisa Marie will be Adela speaking to the crowd and singing. I know it's four months off yet but you need people to commit. We're hoping that people can um, come along on the... Uh, Sunday the 3rd of um, September we're having our first sort of uh, big workshop event and showing people what are the three, we've got basically three different levels of commitment, the full-on commitment which is to uh, come along for most Sundays between now and and uh, January and be involved in the acting, lots of singing, you know, be a, a core member and then the next uh, level of commitment which would be 
uh, not as many rehearsals and and um, but be singing in those big songs, the historic songs that we know were sung, plus Stephen's song and a big finale. And then people who really haven't got much time but want to be involved, we really need them to come on board in the last week or so and be an unruly mob. And what are they supposed to dress in? Well, that's all, we'll all be de- that'll all be decided over the coming months. Um, I mean, obviously, we, uh, we will be uh, relying a lot on op shops here. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> but the main, um, the main uh, props will be banners and posters, and um, that's really what it's, it's all about, is getting that, uh, that homemade but very, very well-organised spirit of what... I mean, they didn't have social media or, you know, any of the things we have, and somehow they'd get these extraordinary big crowds of people involved in activities at very short notice. So our unruly mob, um, you know, that's uh, if people can commit um, to any of those three levels of um, involvement, that, that's help, helpful to us. So you can also go to the website or email us at serenadingadela at gmail.com, Facebook, all these things you can uh, get on board and register to participate in whatever way you like, which could be just doing a bit of marching around Coburg and Brunswick and a bit of singing solidarity songs and um, waving your placard like crazy. And uh, I think a lot of 3CR activists have probably got the job uh, qualifications for that. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Thanks so much, Jeannie. Pleasure. And that was Jeannie Marsh, the Artistic Director of Serenading Adela. And this is just a small part of the song, Ghosts Don't Lie, by Stephen Tabera, with soloist Lisa Marie Parker and the choir.
And that's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4, but do stay tuned for Dunbar Law coming up in about one minute. Bye for now.